welcome to episode 29 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey there, Steve. Kathy Potter is our guest for this episode. She joined us from her home in Vancouver to share stories from the heart of the music scene in Norwich during the late 80s and early 90s. Ben, many of Kathy's experiences speak to a very particular time in music, don't they? Yeah, they they really do. Um, and think um, one of the things that kind of Kathy brought to it was sort of saying about you know when you're living through something you don't always realize how awesome things are um and you know because everything's very much experiential particularly when you're a young person starting out um but they're kind of um, looking back and those reflections on the historical and the vibrant local scene that kathy was able to tap into and how key that was to kind of um yeah feeling enlivened by the idea of being a young musician it was fantastic yeah, yeah, I loved hearing that stuff. I also really like Kathy's link to fashion and how that uh, tied to Adam and the Ants as kind of the ground zero for her, her creativity. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I think I I'd had a <laughs> I'd had, had a very not not a similar experience in terms of fashion, but the the influence of Adam and the Ants. I remember that specifically. I think we must have been a similar age and sharing stories about purchasing that. Well, the you know Kings of the Wild Frontier, and um, what an incredible. Uh, record that was and her reflections on the kind of on um how important top of the pops was at the time and seeing those kind of key artists and leave an impression on you in that kind of format um how incredible that was and actually we really miss that don't we we miss we miss a kind of vehicle like even though at the time as i grew older derided top of the pops all the time but as a young person we really miss that kind of um, that kind of avenue into music i think yeah, well, do, do you remember when we made when we made main stage, and a lot of the people that we spoke to from the uh, were of a very were of, a, of a generation, and referred to the Bowie performance of Starman on on top of the pops, and how that was the catalyst for them. That was you know a, like a seismic event, um, yeah. and people still talk about that now. Um, and and actually, the the Adam and the Ants appearing on top of the pops and doing their thing, it was it had a similar impact, I think. In, I mean, m- maybe not quite so, quite so seismic, but certainly for that generation of of young people, uh, such as us and Kathy, watching that, wow, this is something completely other. Yeah, and specifically with reference to that band, if you go, if you you know go back and listen to that music and think of that as being mainstream pop music. It's so it's so odd, isn't it? It's so odd, you know. There's a lot of vivid descriptions of venues and a really exciting time for the scene that Kathy was part of, wasn't there? There was, and I think you obviously you came, you know, you grew up around the same sort of area, so you kind of had direct experience of some of the, you know, lots of the venues that she was talking about, and maybe you'd it sounded like you crossed over at quite a few gigs. You were probably in the same audiences at some of those same shows. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we were. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Kathy's stories are great, and and this episode feels like it. Uh, in some ways, it saves the best till last because the, there's uh, the stories towards the end of the episode about shooting uh, uh, pop videos in America were just fantastic they were they were and it came at the end of you know the end of her sort of time uh, or current time as being a musician although clearly she still has aspirations to make music and um 
I love the fact I loved it when she said, um, you know, being in a band only ever lost me lost me money. And of course, it's something that we've touched on with many people. You know, it's not um, and very much not about it's not about money. It's not about defining success in those kind of career frameworks. Um, it's this kind of the main motivation for for starting and and the reason for carrying on is just the the love and passion for making music and the and the kind of situations that that and possibilities that that brings you in into and those are those video stories that come at the end of this episode are are stunning aren't they so i mean hilarious yeah perf- perfect examples of that yeah brilliant um well our, our thanks to kathy for for coming on to songs from a padded envelope and uh sharing her stories and uh, there's a whole load of links at the uh, uh in the show notes to kathy's work ben incidentally do you know what kt tunstall ian rankin jack vetriano and barbara dixon have in common i've got a feeling i do but i'm i i'm not going to hazard a guess i'm going to leave that one to you mate <laughs> well they're actually all from fife in scotland if you want to add to our list of five stars, take the low road over to Apple <laughs> HQ and leave us a nice review. Okay, and on that note, shall we go over to our episode with Kathy Potter on episode 29 of Songs from a Padded Envelope? Hi, my name's Kathy Potter. I was in a Norwich indie band called Scarlet in the early 90s. The demo track that I'm going to play you later is called A Glimpse of Scarlet. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Cathy. The biog you sent over has some amazing details we want to explore with you. But um, starting uh, with music in your family, uh, in your family home and growing up and your memories of that, if you wouldn't mind sharing a few of those, please. Yeah, so um, I grew up on a farm in mid-Norfolk and uh, my dad was a, actually a lay preacher as well as being a farmer. So my, my parents always had loads of albums. So what was whatever was in the top 40, they would be buying. So they had everything from ABBA to Rolling Stones. They had Blondie, like Simon and Garfunkel, even some Deep Purple thrown in there. So um, we would always be playing music. Um, my dad just loved, he loved music and he also played acoustic guitar. Um, we also had a piano in the house, which my mum played mostly, and I had a little sort of dabbling on it, but I wasn't very good. Um, it wasn't really my thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, me and my sisters were always playing our parents' records, and, and then we kind of started buying our own stuff, and we'd club together our pocket money and trot off down to Woolies and buy the, ne- you know, buy the latest album. Um, and Top of the Pops was the Thursday family institution. You, you know, you could not miss Top of the Pops. So, um, yeah, I, like when I was about 12, I can just remember seeing Adam and the Ants on there performing Kings of the Wild Frontier. And I was like, oh, my God, who's this band? <laughs> and uh, I like wanted to have feathers in my hair and like a military jacket as well. So like I obviously trotted off down to Woolworths with my pocket money to buy the Kings of the Wild Frontier album. And uh, yeah, it kind of snowballed from there, really. Oh, that's funny. I remember. I remember buying Kings of the Wild Frontier at Woolworths yeah. as well. <laughs> did you have um? Did you have Dirk wears white socks too? I, I had to go backwards for that. There was a, a yeah, friend me of mine, too. A friend of mine afterwards who said, "Yeah, no, you should go back and check that out as well." Yeah, I did exactly that. Um, yeah, I went off to Woolworths again, bought Dirk wears white socks, and uh, it had um a track on there called the I think it was called the day I met God, and it was um all about 
God having egg on his face. And I was kind of at the age where I was trying to annoy my dad. So I thought it would be really hilarious to go, oh, dad, look at this. And like playing this record, him being all super religious and everything. Uh, he was so furious. And he was like, this is so blasphemous. You're going to take that back to Woolworths. So I'm like, ugh. He made me take it back. He like literally frog marched me in there. And um, I'm like all red faced and, you know, pissed off. And I sort of had to tell the woman behind the counter that my dad thought it was blasphemous. So I needed to have my money back. And I was like, she had no way she's going to give me my money back. And uh, the old battle act, she actually agreed with my dad. <laughs> she's like, oh, oh, yes, this is terrible. <laughs> have you read Ad Adamant's um, autobiography? I have, but such a long time ago, I can't really remember it. I have seen them a couple of times. Yeah, it's, the book's great. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ace read. I've never seen him play live, but still, apparently, his shows are amazing. So I'm yeah, yeah, I saw him in um, Bristol um, quite a few years ago, um, probably about 10 years ago. And he was playing all the old Adam and the Ant stuff. And, uh, and then I saw him again at the UEA, sort of a year later. And um, he still hadn't brought out his new album, so I don't know whether that ever happened. I don't think it did, unfortunately. I think he, he, had, he had a rough old time for a few years, didn't he? Like battles, yeah. with, battles yeah. with mental health and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. A friend of ours, a good friend of ours, Paul, well, I think he went to see him at the Roundhouse maybe six or seven years ago and said the show was incredible. Said he was, I mean, mm. he's a consummate performer, isn't he? Oh, he's amazing, yeah. I mean, even now, you know, he was still dressing up in the, in the style, you know, had the jacket and everything. Was, was that the first kind of th music that you would describe as actually finding for yourself something that belonged to you then, as opposed to music that was shared in the family? Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I kind of didn't know it, but that was sort of my first foray into kind of indie kind of punk pop scene. And uh, But I mean, later on, when I was 16, I went to Kingsland Tech to study for my A-levels and um like a really pivotal moment for me was like in the unlikely venue of the college library. I was kind of orientating myself around there on day one, because it was obviously somewhere I was going to be spending quite a lot of time. And um, I came across all these music papers. It was Sounds, Melody Maker and NME. And I was like, oh my God, what are these? So I never, you know, didn't even know they existed and, you know, hadn't really been to see any live bands or anything like that. And uh, obviously they, you know, they've got reviews in there of, of gigs and um, they've got, adverts for gigs coming up so that's that was kind of like where I really discovered indie music and sort of you know that bands were actually playing at a venue near me did you have someone making recommendations to you about you know what to what to go for or were you drawn to a particular thing um I think that probably the, the friends I was hanging around with were also you know interested in learning all about new styles of music as well and obviously I got into listening to John Peel because he had his late night radio one show at the time so it was like uh, you know I'd be listening to it in bed and I've had this I'd have this thing where I wouldn't be able to go to sleep until I'd heard a particular song you know whatever craze I was into at the particular time um, so yeah that's kind of where I learned about um, the UEA and the gigs that were coming into the LCR and the first ones that I went to see were Spear of Destiny and then the week later I went to see The Cult on their love tour which I've actually still got that album and yeah it was like oh these are amazing and then afterwards we went backstage and um, we bought a big poster outside from one of the hawkers outside and uh, got it autographed by everyone in the band. 
I mean, there's so much to unpicking what you just said there. I mean, going just going back a little bit, winding back to the sort of the John Peel and the and the music press reference. I mean, think we've covered that with some people on the podcast before, and the, at that at that time, those two avenues. I mean, music press was in its heyday in terms of the quality of the writing and and how people came to music and Peel in terms of an experience, particularly that kind of and um, the late night listening experience, which felt kind of very sort of solitary for yourself, but also kind of just opened the world out, didn't it, in terms of the possibilities of musical references suddenly became endless. Yeah, it was, it really, it, it did. And, um, you know, he was playing the kind of music that nobody else would play on the radio. So, you know, I mean, he was, I think he loved The Fall, didn't he, which, you know, weren't one of my favourite bands, but it was a really good place to hear new music and, you know, you know get to sort of hear new styles that you wouldn't normally get to listen to. And he was also playing the stuff that they were writing about in the papers as well. So, and there was no internet then. So you couldn't just like Google such and such a band and, oh, here, here they are, go straight to the, you know, band camp page or whatever. It's, you know, the only, the only way of actually hearing something was either to hear it on the radio or go and listen to it live or, you know, go down the record store and buy the album. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other um, sort of UEA shows that you remember going to that, that, that stick out for you? Oh, I've seen so many bands at the UEA. I've seen um, Iggy Pop there, um, countless bands, uh, Manic Street Preachers, pretty much everyone that's been through there. I had formative gig going years at the, at the UEA and just, yes, yeah, such fond memories of that, that venue. Just incredible. Uh, yeah. They had a, I mean, they had a really good gig culture at the UEA, I think. Definitely. And like every band that was on their major tour, um, it was a brilliant place to put now Norwich on the map with that because literally um, it was on everyone's university tour list. So otherwise there wasn't really a venue that was that big in Norwich, at, you know, up until sort of 1990 when they opened Waterfront, um, you know, obviously, which was the smaller venue. But um, yeah, the UEA was the was the one to see the bands. And because it wasn't too big that you couldn't get right down the front and, you know, really get in. Because I used to be right down in the mosh pit. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. where I where I aimed for, and um, from <laughs> there I would then propel myself to the front of the stage. <laughs> so, how Brilliant. old would you've been when you went to the Spear of Destiny show, then, Kathy? Oh, I was sixteen. And were you already playing music by that point as as well? No, um, I could. My dad taught me to play guitar when I was about twelve, so acoustic guitar. But that was all kind of his churchy songs, you know, kind of religious stuff. So, um, I kind of I didn't even consider that at the time as being able to play guitar. It wasn't until I was 18, I'd moved to London, I was studying in, um, at the London College of Fashion when I was 18. And uh, me and my friends were going to see a lot of bands. And we were going to see the smaller bands. And they, they were kind of like usually friends of friends, like we'd go and see into a circle at the 100 Club, or um, who would be else we'd go and see Ghost Dance at the Hammersmith Palais. And yeah, so they were, they kind of seemed a little more accessible. And so rather than just seeing these, you know, ginormous people above you on stage, um, you were actually kind of seeing them more at your own level. And then obviously you go and speak to them afterwards and, you know, became friends with them. And it just started occurring to me that, oh, you know, I could actually do this myself. And it made me want to be in a band, you know, the more, I, the more live music I went to see, the more I decided that I actually wanted to be on the stage instead of just watching. And uh, yeah, it kind of went from there. So 
to start with, um, me and my friend Simon sat there and we were like, oh, should we start a band? And, uh, and then we started to think, oh, who's going to do what? And um, I mean, the, the natural thing for me, because I could already play guitar, would have been just to, you know, move from acoustic to electric. But because I kind of had the stigma of um, the whole religious thing, it was to me, no, 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 I can't do that. That's just too embarrassing. And so um, it was like, well, could I sing? Uh, no, I was too shy to sing. And drums, um, I tried to play drums before, uh, but they're not really me either. And I was like thinking, well, what about bass guitar? It looks really cool. Um, you don't really have to do much moving around on stage. You just kind of like stand there and look good and, you know, play along <laughs> with the drums. And uh, it's like, yeah, I could do that. That'd be easy for me to learn. Um, asked uh, Santa Claus, uh, 1986, if I could have a bass guitar for Christmas. And uh, yes, he did comply. So I got a, like, it was a three quarter size bass and a practice amp. So yeah, obviously mum and dad. And bought me that and uh, yeah so I started um, started learning just sort of playing along to bands I never had any formal lessons I wasn't really interested and uh, we there was a lot of fictitious bands you know like oh yeah right okay we're gonna start this band and then someone would start trying to play or start trying to sing and then realize that actually we didn't really know what we were doing at all uh, so that never while I was in London that never actually happened there was lots of bands that never were and you know gigs that never were it wasn't really until i moved to norwich that you know i got my shit together and joined a proper band so you weren't deterred by by the stuff where things not getting off the ground you weren't you weren't deterred by that when you were in london and you were still you were still kind of you know, had that ambition to to get it going it was just fun i mean you've got bands like um fuzzbox who were you know really kind of diy pop punk goth and uh, you, listening to people like that and just looking at them and you think, oh, well, they can do it. And they're not even that good. You know, they're not brilliant musicians or anything. So, you know, you, there wasn't anything like I didn't ever think, oh, I need to be an amazing musician. I need to go off and have bass lessons. I did have bass lessons once or twice, but they just tried to teach me 12 bar blues, which really was not my thing. So no, no, no. <laughs> there's, there's something in that kind of um, lengthy thought process about you know, being around music, being around friends, being in bands, you know, having your imaginary bands. There's something very <laughs> important about that, about uh, about coming to actually the decision to then have the, um, the, the, the guts to get up on stage and be a musician, isn't there? It's a very, very important formative experience, I think. It is, yeah, just the talking about it and the whole fictitious band and the, like the bigging up something that may or may not even happen. I'm sure so many people have actually done that and you know obviously sometimes it does really end up with you being in a in a band so oh no it wasn't until I moved to Norwich and um I moved back to Nor well, I moved back to Norfolk and ended up in Norwich uh, me and my sister were renting a house with a load of other people and uh, her then boyfriend Alex could play drums and then one of our other friends could sing and then we bumped into someone else who could play guitar. And we're like, oh, well, let's start a band. So we started rehearsing somewhere down on Edward Street, I think it was, just off Magdalen Street. And uh, we were like, oh, what name should we have? So we, we kind of conjured up the psychotic flower groove, which just really, it really did suit the kind of music we were doing. It was quite sort of it's grungy, brilliant. kind of punky, um, pretty <laughs> noisy. <laughs> And we did we did one gig in Kings Lynn and 
uh, we had bottles thrown at us, which isn't a bad thing. Cause that's like a term of endearment in Kings Lynn. So, you know, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> what, what sort of bands were you trying to emulate with, with, uh, with that band then? Oh, do you know what? I can't even remember. Um, I know that I had a bass line which was based around um, the Munsters theme tune. And that was kind of like, oh, that was our main song, you know, our most popular song. Um, but yeah, I mean, probably sort of um, hippie bands or kind of a bit psychedelic at that point. I mean, my particular bass style um, I'd say I was always really attracted to any band that had a female bass player. I've never really had any bass heroes as such, but um, I used to like things like Sisters of Mercy because um, they had a really cool female bassist in there. And also uh, there was another band called The Bomb Party and uh, they, they, had a, they had a really cool bassist, female bassist as well. And um, yeah, so I guess my bass style in particular is probably a bit gothy because that's the kind of stuff that I was listening to in the sort of mid mid eighties. Yeah, so solid bass lines. Yeah, solid. yeah, so kind of Holding solid. It down. Exactly, kind of like rhythmic, sort of pulsing, solid bass lines. Somebody did describe it as um, petroleum bass lines once, which I thought was pretty good. Nice. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so um, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the, you mentioned your love of fashion and going and studying fashion. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what that fulfilled creatively for you as well? Where it took yeah, um, well, I think I've always, well, from the age of 13, I wanted to be a fashion designer and I always used to make my dolls clothes and then I started making my own clothes. And I used to buy, when I was about 16, 17, I subscribed to The Face and ID magazines, which were kind of, really arty they had a, they had it was a kind of a combination of art fashion and music and i just used to love pouring over those magazines and looking at the fashion stuff and it was all photographs from london club scene and things like that so when i was doing my a levels in king's lynn so i'm not very academic i'm more kind of arty i was doing art and fashion and textiles um and then somebody who was in the year above me she was sending letters to our fashion and textiles teacher and she'd gone to the London College of Fashion and she was she was writing and describing the course in great detail to the teacher. And I was like, that's exactly what I want to do because she was doing a little bit of design, a little bit of pattern cutting and a little bit of sewing. Like it was the whole learning how to make clothes from scratch to a really high industrial standard. I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I applied, you know, I didn't think, you know, I've got hope in hell of getting in. It's like London College of Fashion, you know, like they get hundreds of people apply for the courses and only 30 people get on it and um, yeah amazingly enough I actually got on the course so um yeah I've always had that you know I've always had that love of fashion and that's kind of what has stuck with me you know my whole working life I've always been in fashion clothing and film as well costume does that um the creativity that's involved in the clothes making does it come from the same place as as uh, and fulfill the kind of same desires that making music does I think so, because I personally think that I've only got so much creative energy and I've always found that when I've been in a creative job, I've had less inclination to spend on music. Whereas when I've been in a dead end job, which hasn't been very often, then I've had a lot more time to spend on being creative in a band. So at this point now, I'm, you know, I'm back in, um, obviously I need to earn money, you know, 
being in a band never actually earned me any money it only lost it and uh, you know you kind of have to think well um, am I going to just spend spend my whole life trying to make it as a musician or am I going to have something that I can fall back on so um, although it was never that was never really the plan was to have it as a fallback thing um, you know one has always complemented the other and yeah, I mean, they're always intertwined I and, mean, you, you know, you can't look at a band on stage and think, oh, there isn't some kind of fashion or style element in there somewhere. Unless it's you two and then they're just like <laughs> jeans and T-shirts. <laughs> did, did Not they, allowed. <laughs> did that impact on the way that you presented yourself with the bands that you were subsequently in? Yeah, definitely, because I've always really been into my style as well. Um, it's I would never, ever go on stage just in jeans and T-shirt. That would be like sacrilege. Um, you know, like when, when I was in Scarlet, um, the uh, the drummer tried to make uh, me and the singer just wear all black. And I'm like, no, no, you can't tell me what to wear. No one's told me what to wear since I was 11 years old. This isn't going to work. You know, and I, I mean, I obviously didn't take any notice because there's a, a load of black and white pictures of the band and I know for a fact that this top that I was wearing was um, this orange rubber top. So yeah, obviously took no notice there. <laughs> there I'm, I'm tracking all of this back to Adam and the Ants actually. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Ant has got a lot to be blamed for. <laughs> uh, I think he'd be admiring your approach actually. I think he'd be, yeah, a, a fan of it. Uh, well, moving on to Scarlet, which is the, the, the demo we'll be playing at the end of the show. Can you tell us a little bit about how the band came together and, and what your ambitions were for Scarlet when you were starting out? Um, well, I joined late. Um, they'd already been going for a year or two. Um, I joined sort of at, um, in, a, in 1990 when I was about 1920. Um, they were called Scarlet Angel at that point. And I had just broken up with a boyfriend and I'd, I was meeting up with my friend Kaz in Norwich for a drink and she brought along her new roommate and she introduced us and I was like, I know you from somewhere. And she was looking at me going, yeah, I know you from somewhere as well. And then it transpired that we had actually been two years together on the A-level art class at Kings Lynn Tech. And this was Sally, she's the singer of Scarlet. And, you know, we got chatting and amazingly, we'd never actually been really friends on the course, even though we got on like an absolute house on fire you know, once we, you know, got together for Scarlet, um, I think that she'd always had a boyfriend and like I'd been in a different set of friends. So like, even though we'd been in the same class together, it, was, it wasn't like we didn't like each other or anything. We just kind of didn't really hang out together. Um, so yeah, um, it, it transpired that she was in a band and they were looking for a bass player and I could play bass. And so she was like, oh, why don't you come along and see us on Saturdays? We're playing at the King's Head on Magdalen Street. Just come and see what you think. So I went along to the King's Head on Magdalen Street to watch them play. And um, I just split up with this boyfriend. So I, and I was on my own as well. So I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my hands? So I basically sat there and chain smoked through the whole gig because that was in the days when you could smoke in a pub. And I didn't actually even smoke. I don't even know what I was doing smoking. <laughs> and, um, so, and they hated smokers because Sally loved her really kind of pure sounding voice. Um, so for her to like be somewhere where there was someone smoking was like, no. Um, and yeah, so I saw them play and I was like, mm, they're not really my cup of tea. They were a bit kind of pub rock for me because I was at the time really into the KLF, um, you know, because like, I was going, I was doing the, all the whole rave thing at that time in the early 90s. But um, I was kind of looking for a distraction. So I was like, well, OK, you know, this will be a good distraction for a little while anyway. 
and Sally said, well, come along for an audition. And she said, well, can you actually play? How well can you play bass? Um, do you know all the chords and everything? I'm like, mm, no. She says, do you know the open string notes? Or, no. <laughs> she said, well, don't tell, for, for God's sake, don't tell Andy, the drummer. Um, just pretend that you know. She taught me the open the open notes, open string notes. And um, and then, you know, we just winged it through the audition. And, uh, and then she taught me at a later date. So um, they obviously, you know, discarded the whole smokers thing and the fact that I, you know, didn't even know the notes. Uh, she just wanted another girl in the band, basically. She was a bit outnumbered. Um, there was a five piece at the time. Um, Sally was playing guitar and then they also had another guitarist as well. And then there was Steve Blomfield on keyboards. Um, Andy Harrison on drums and obviously Sally Lodge, uh, singer and guitarist. And then there was also Drew, um, he was the second guitarist. And then um, they decided about a year down the line that they really wanted to go down the indie route. So just drop the whole rock thing, which I was really happy about because, you know, obviously the indie scene was much more my thing. And they also, they dropped Drew, um, the other guitarist. Obviously that was really sad because he was actually a really nice guy, you know, but you know, such is life. And yeah, so we ended up, so we started sort of going down the whole indie route. That's a really, really, in, really interesting decision. And I think I've been in bands that have done, have sort of done that as well, kind of just kind of to, to drop something and follow what feels like the obvious course. But yeah. How easy was that for you as a band to make that switch and away from that into, into the sort of indie style? It was really easy. I mean, we obviously just dropped the angel off the Scarlet Angel. And I mean, at the time, uh, this was like early 90s, there was just so much influence going around you know, you had kind of like Lush just coming out and sort of Elastica and um, Bride, those sort of bands. Um, so we we went into the studio because um, we used to go and record at Purple Rain Studios in Great Yarmouth. And um, the band, they already used to go in there before I was in the band. So um, they already knew it was Richard Hamilton who owned it, Hammy. And um, uh, they already knew him. So uh, we went in there and he was kind of really... Um, producing us so we kind of said well you know we want to change our style and he was he was actually you know one of the main reasons that we were able to do that easily as well because he just said oh you need to do this you need to kind of like layer the guitars and kind of you need to bury the vocals in this layer of sound to you know to be with the sound that's happening now so yeah, he was kind of producing us and, and kind of really uh, rearranging the songs and sort of um, pointing us in the right direction of, of how to do that. Well, so that experience of going into the studio, is that the first time you'd recorded anything? Yourself? Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, rather than the um, other than recording the top 40 on my cassette player. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were saying earlier about not, not being particularly confident but all the sort of stories that you've you've told so far you strike me as being incredibly confident and just to have the the confidence to go into a studio with a band that you know were kind of had more experience than you in in those sort of situations to just go in and you know yeah that's what I'm doing next I'm going to go and record with the band and put my bass parts down was it like that for you did you did you have any trepidation going in or were you just no I can do I this I don't remember. I don't. I, I don't remember being particularly nervous about going in the studio, and 
you know, I mean, by the time you've got the you've got the drums set up and you kind of like you're practicing everything and you know you you've done the drums like a million times and like everyone's falling asleep. So <laughs> when does it get to be my turn? <laughs> I mean, in those days, you couldn't. Um, you had to play it properly. There was none of this kind of like, um, oh, the you know, the engineer will put it in time and in tune at a later date after you've gone. You actually had to play it properly. So you'd be playing it over and over and over again until you've nailed it. Um, no, I don't remember being nervous. Not playing bass. Um, if I had to do backing vocals, that really used to freak me out. Yeah, like because that's that's obviously me making a sound. Whereas when I'm playing the bass, that's just me playing it. That's not actually me making the noise. Which you know, for me, that's totally different. Do you remember what the intention was for the band when you'd finished that recording? What were the what were the aspirations and hopes at that point? We used to just demo everything, so um, we actually all worked. So um, we would uh, we could fund our you know recording habit, and yeah, we just preferred to have everything done properly rather than sort of home because I mean home recording wasn't really a big thing, and in, in then it was you know that was quite difficult to do, and we actually preferred having somebody professional to help us. And we were we were really you know we were probably a producer's dream because you know we really were open and into listening to what you know any advice and we would sort of suck it up you know like a sponge what about getting the the, the demos out into the world to try and uh, get signed oh nothing to do with me i did none of that that was all sally and andy um they were the ones who like you know used to put things in the padded envelope and send it off um i don't i don't remember doing any of that i think that the most i did was probably put posters up um yeah but uh, that was all sally and andy they were kind of like the um the principal songwriters in the band and uh, so they they kind of like did all the all the admin stuff like that and booked the band booked the gigs and everything um yeah it was the, the i mean the reason that we were in the studio it was it was basically to record demos that we could send to record labels and um also send out to venues as well to get us gigs and then obviously we used to make sort of like five track demos as well which would then sell at gigs you know just to make ourselves a bit of extra money um, we we did, we gigged a lot i mean when i joined um as scarlet angel we were sort of doing pubs and sort of smaller venues and uh, and then sort of by the time we'd merged into scarlet uh, the waterfront was open by then because that was sort of you know funded by the norwich venue campaign so like most bands in Norwich at that time had played a gig, you know, as a fundraiser, or if you weren't in a band, you'd most certainly gone to a concert and paid for that, you know, to help fund the whole opening of the waterfront. And then obviously I think it was 91 when the Wild Club opened at the Arts Centre. Um, and, you know, Barry Newman put on just thousands of gigs. They've actually just, um, there's actually a website that they're now doing for, um, for the Wild Club. So that's like being built now, which I think Nick Stone is building that. So that'll be interesting. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it really will. What a great idea. So di how much comeback did you get from labels uh, from the from your demos being sent out? Um, once we did the we did the song Glimpse of Scarlet, which is like obviously the demo that I'm going to play. Um, that was our best song um, early on. And it was the one that got us the most interest. And uh, we had I mean, there was a, an article in a in a paper like, a you know, a, a feature about us. And the journalist wrote that uh, there were more A&R people in the audience than there were punters. Uh, that was a, that was an art centre gig. 
um, we had uh, we had loads of record labels interested in us. Um, um, you know, like Creation, 4AD, EMI, and we had uh, one guy, Dave Massey, who was um, part of Hit and Run Records. I think they were like Genesis or something like that. Um, he was really interested in us, and he came down to the art centre to watch us play. And um, I was talking to Sally the other day to see if she could kind of like remember anything that I couldn't. And she said, oh, can you remember that gig that um, Dave Massey came to? And I was like, not really. I can remember going up, going in the back room afterwards and like chatting to him. But she said, oh, it was brilliant. When we came off stage and we had to go through the back to talk to him because there was no backstage really at the art centre. You kind of had to walk back through the crowd. And she said it was like the parting of the sea everyone like we came off stage and everyone like parted for us to walk through because we were like following Dave Massey through to go and talk about you know like potentially a record deal <laughs> so that must have been super exciting do you remember the anticipation of playing a gig knowing that A&R people were going to be there potentially opening out you know a career a career for you yeah I was shit scared <laughs> I always used to get nervous about going on stage anyway, but yeah, like the added pressure of having A&R people there, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty frightening. I mean, me and, me and Sally, we were kind of like fronting the band, really, and people used to call us the Albino Goths, because um, like we were <laughs> these two peroxide blonde girls sort of in our early 20s, kind of kept, Sally was like belting out these guitar tunes, and uh, it was me playing bass, so um, yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting as well. How far did the conversations with getting signed go for for, for for the band? Oh, we um Dave Massey gave us about five grand, I think. Um, or was it two grand? I think it was two, um, to record a five track demo. Um, and so we went off to Purple Rain Studios to record it, but um I've sort of because I can't I can't really remember why we didn't get signed. So I've been talking to Sally and Andy about it recently. And uh, when I asked Andy, I said, so why didn't Hit and Run sign us? And he said, oh, it was Richard's fault from Purple Rain. And I'm like, why is it his fault? And he said, because he wasn't there <laughs> to record it. <laughs> I went, well, how'd you work that one out? He says, well, he got sucked because he, Richard was um, the singer of Stare and they'd just been signed by Big Life and they'd gone off to Bath Moles to record their album, Luxury of Anger. And um, so he obviously wasn't, he wasn't going to like knock that on the head to come and record Scarlet's demo track, was he? So, um, <laughs> and we didn't even have to do it that quickly. I think Dave Massey had said, oh, you know, you've got plenty of time. You don't have to do it right this minute. But um, Andy was in a hurry and like it had to be done now. So we ended up going into Purple Rain with um, the engineer who was standing in. And uh, he was obviously just an engineer and not a producer, which is all he was being paid for. Um, but when I sort of put that one to Sally, she was like, oh, she says, um, basically, the songs were shit. <laughs> <laughs> she said it was a shit demo. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't, actually. I, um, I've, I've been listening to some of the tracks Andy sent them all to me recently, and there's actually some really good songs on there. Um, but I think um, I've been sort of thinking, well, why didn't we get signed? And listening to the music now, I mean, obviously, it sounds of an era, but... Um, we were kind of developing our sound at that time. And um, Sally, um, Sally's style of vocals, she was still developing that. And she was, you know, she was kind of like trying to emanate all the sort of lush and that kind of wispy voice and then sort of also belting it out as well. 
And there was a few songs that we had which really suited her voice. And some of the songs I don't think really did suit her voice as well. And um, because we were still, we, you know, we were still in early stages of developing our style and sound, um, I, you know, that was probably part of it as well, because, you know, they want the whole package, don't they? It's not, it's not just about three songs, you've got to have a lot. And, you know, they could see past the fact if it wasn't a great recording, they know a good song, if, you know, if they can hear it. Do you think you were genuinely surprised that you didn't get signed at the time? Um, I, do you know what? I can't even remember. It was like 30 years ago. So, um, I've, you know, obviously to revisit all this, um, it's been really interesting because um, there's certain things that I do remember now. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what I actually even would have done if we had got signed, you know. I mean, I, I was, I didn't have a, I didn't have a really good job to leave or anything like that. I was, I was actually working at Kettle Chips at the time, you know, the crisp factory in Norwich. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't have had any qualms about leaving that. Um, yeah, I mean, we did quite, we did, uh, we did a lot of gigs. We were traveling around in um, this old van of Andy's. Um, it was just like this pile of shit, basically. And you had to start it with a screwdriver. And it, it only had, it only had two front seats, which of course, um, first class, first class seating was Sally and Andy. And uh, me and Steve were sort of resignated to the back. And uh, the, it had these two Lotus bucket seats in the back, you know, from a Lotus sports car, because that's where Andy worked. So they were like bolted into the back. So that's where me and Steve sat with all the equipment in the back of the van. What were the, what were the standout shows for you with Scarlet then? What, what comes back to immediately to the front of your mind? Um, probably the bath moles. Um, we had a really good gig there. We did like, we did four dates with Stair when they were on their tour. Um, so uh, we supported them at Bath Moles. That went. We've, we've actually got a recording of that, and that actually went really well. New Order were there, and uh, they were in the crowd, and they liked us apparently. And the Waterfront for Sound City. Um, we did three gigs for the um, during that Sound City week, um, which you know obviously they all, they stand out. And yeah, just sort of those those three times really. Were any of those broadcasters part of the Sound City? Our gigs weren't broadcast, uh, but obviously that that was such an exciting time for Norwich because it was the first ever Radio One Sound City, and you know they were they'd got all the trucks there. They were broadcasting live from lots of the gigs, and we played upstairs one day in the um, in the cafe, which actually was really small. I don't even know how they managed to fit a band in there and audience as well, but they did. And then downstairs. Uh, there was Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine were headlining and then Stair were opening for them. So um, they actually got broadcast. Those two, those two headline bands, they got they were broadcast like to millions of listeners on Radio One. Um, but yeah, it was it was so exciting. It's like you'd be going around Norwich. It's like, oh, who's playing next? I can remember reading a couple of um, when I was looking through all my stuff like for this show, I came across loads of magazine cuttings and sort of different news articles and there was uh, the EDP in Norwich which is like the you know the Norwich local newspaper there was some there was some letters that had been sent into the newspaper sort of regarding Sound City and there was one guy he was really complaining because we did this gig at the um they had an outside truck in the Haymarket and um, where you know bands local bands were playing sort of over various evenings and 
uh, there was this one guy, he was really complaining about all this noise and these drunken people just lying around in the street and it's disgraceful. <laughs> and uh, then there was this other letter from this guy who said, oh, I saw this amazing band called Scarlet perform at the Haymarket and yeah, I can't wait for next year's Sound City. What a brilliant thing. And uh, it was, uh, I was at some of those Sound City gigs and it was an amazing time. It was, it was really exciting, energised beyond Norwich because I was in Lowestoft when, when that happened and it was it, not, nothing like that took place really um, th it was kind of unprecedented and um, the waterfront was such a buzzing venue and um, it was John wasn't it the guy that booked the gigs at the waterfront John oh John Fawcett is that his name okay I I yeah. really don't remember that now no he's a smashing guy yeah yeah he he uh he was a real fan of the band that I was in at the time and put us on at the waterfront a, a few times for, gave us some really nice support slots there and uh um yeah I just think it was a it, it is a brilliant venue I haven't been back there for years but um did you ever get to play at the UEA by the way yeah, yeah, we played on oh, the main stage. Yeah, we, I can't wow. remember who we were supporting, but I suppose, yeah, that, that should probably be up there in my top five of gigs, shouldn't it? I'm very envious of that. That's what an amazing thing to be on that stage after being Yeah, yeah, you've got like somebody, you know, doing a proper sound system for you and everything. So, you know, all your monitors are going to work and yeah, great sound. Do you, do you both think, having both been around it at that time, do you think that had... Um, a lasting impact on the music scene in Norwich yeah yeah um I mean the 90s in general for music at the time um I kind of you know when you're living through something you don't really realize how epic it is and the early 90s or for the music scene you know in general in the UK and obviously Norwich focusing on that for me um you know, we were living through an absolutely amazing time and you've got all the art centre, all the indie bands coming through there like Oasis and I think um, Nirvana played there too. They did. Um, yeah, and it was just such an awesome time and like, you know, there was, there was gigs going on, there was festivals going on, all the gigs were really well attended. And, you know, you just don't realise it. Cause, I, mean, I don't know if you've seen that film Lady Bird. Um, there's, a, there's a bit where um, Lady Bird, the main character, she's sitting in her car and she's kind of at a, a crossroads in her life. And uh, she's with her mum and she says, I just want to live through something. And her mum turns to her and says, but you are living through something. And, you know, I just thought, wow, that is, that is my life. <laughs> Huh. You know, you, you kind of, when you're when you're in the middle of something, it's like being in a, in a storm, isn't it? You're kind of like in the eye of the storm. Everything's going off around you. And you don't really realise that it's, you know, it's, it's something which is historical. You're, really, you're going to look back on that. And that's a, you know, once in a lifetime happening there. Yeah, too true, too true. Um, you mentioned that Scarlet had to change the name of the band um, at, at some stage. Can you tell us what happened and how that affected things within the group so that was in 1992 and um, we'd literally just done this demo with dave massey and, uh, and we were doing a lot of gigs live and you know uh, we were sort of going around the country and playing a lot and uh, then this other band called scarlet from scunthorpe they got played on radio one and they basically said oh look we're more famous than you um we're having the name so we were like oh no all that work and uh, i mean uh, 
I, it, it does make you wonder if sometimes some of the some of the record companies were actually phoning us thinking that they were talking to Scarlet from Scunthorpe. <laughs> you know, is that what happened with you guys? Did you were you expecting Scarlet from Scunthorpe? You know, sorry, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> yeah, so um, so we ended up having to change our name, and uh, we changed it to She, and. Then um, I was talking to Sally um, on Sunday and she said, well, that's, we had to change it again. I was like, what? I don't remember this. <laughs> so um, we were, we apparently, um, we were supposed to be playing at the borderline in London as she, and then they found out that there was another band, again, more famous than us called she, and they were also booked. And they just said, right, well, we're not booking either of you until you sort this out. You know, you've got to sort out who's got the name she, because we can't have two bands in here with the same name. It's just going to be confusing to people. So, um, yeah, uh, we lost out again because they'd made it just before us. And uh, so then the name got changed to Luster. Um, but I think that I think it must have had an effect because people get to know who you are and they get to know your music. They come to the gigs and then, you know, they go along and, they think that they're seeing you again. It's like, oh, that's she from Scunthorpe, or Scarlet from Scunthorpe. So how did the band finally come to an end then, Cathy? Um, well, we used to argue a lot, and uh, Sally and Andy were actually together. They were an item, and um, uh, I don't know, either of you two have been in bands, and if there's, any, if there's a couple in the band, it can sometimes get a bit difficult, and um, Andy was a bit of a control freak. <laughs> yeah Andy was a bit of a control freak as well sorry Andy like we're really good friends now but um yeah in the band he was like you know I said earlier he'd try and tell me what to wear on stage and um in during practices and stuff um if something was going on that he didn't like he'd be like leaning over the drum kit trying to get Sally's attention and like winking at her and she, I mean, she could see him but she was ignoring him because it really used to piss her off as well um so yeah there was loads of loads of sort of arguing in the band and um, I just kind of had enough of it, really. And um, then sort of at the time, um, I then started playing bass with Stair. Um, so I just thought, you know, I don't really I don't really need this anymore. So I, I left I left um, Scarlet, She, Luster, and uh, they carried on without me for a little while. So, um, yeah, that was kind of they carried on. I was the one who left. Mm. And, and did they how much further did they go with, um, after you'd left? Oh, it fizzled out eventually, um, and then Sally and Andy split up, and that was the end of that band. What happened to you with Stair, with playing with Stair? Well, um, like, obviously, I don't know, I haven't mentioned this, but um, I, the uh, singer was actually my boyfriend, um, Richard, so um, when we kind of rewind a few years, or a couple of years, um, when we started going into the studio, like, Richard was really chatting me up, and you know, uh, he'd got a girlfriend. And so it took us, a, took us a couple of years to get together. But yeah, we finally got together. So we were actually an item. And um, and he was like, oh, you know, why don't you come and play bass with us? Because uh, they, they wanted a second guitarist because uh, they only had this Bruno's their guitarist. And uh, they kind of wanted a bigger sound. They wanted to sound more like they did on their records. So they sort of shunted Carl, the bass player, over to second guitar and put me in on bass. So I did a couple of gigs with them. Um, we played the Bull and Gate in London, and then we did a gig at the Arts Centre. But there's like big pressure if you're with somebody in the band and like they're on a higher level to you musically. Like, you know, obviously they, they've really made it. And, you know, I was sort of like on a, a lot lower level musically than they were. So there was big pressure on me to actually be able to play really well. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, Richard was really hard on me because he did not want people saying that I was only in the band because I was his girlfriend. Um, yeah, so I was like, practice, practice, practice. I have got to, it's not just about looking good on stage, you've actually got to be able to play properly. So, I mean, I'd been playing for five years solidly by then. So I, you know, I was pretty good on the bass at this time. I did a couple of gigs with Stare and uh, then they kind of, they disbanded. They, um, the things didn't happen with the record label because um, what happened was, they, um, they brought their album out and they had the um, their single stare. It got blanket played on Radio 1. And then the record label actually forgot to barcode the single. So it would have gone in at like number 27 in the charts. But because it, it was not, it wasn't actually in the official records, it, it didn't get in. So like, yeah, after all that effort, um, that, it, that didn't happen. So things kind of fizzled out with their record label and uh, and then um, they kind of like finished, I think it was about 95. And then we start, we kind of carried on. There was uh, Richard obviously singing and Bruno guitars, Richard and Bruno were the songwriters. And then we got Dave Donnelly on drums. I was obviously playing bass and uh, we started a band called Slot. Um, I, I remember we recorded the one song, which was Cuts Like a Knife, and that actually got on a noise box album. Um, I don't think we recorded anything else, and we certainly didn't do any gigs. Uh, so that was just, you know, that kind of like fizzled out. I think at the time I was then back doing a creative job because I was actually sort of um, designing and pattern cutting um, for bridal wear by this time. So um, all my creative energy was going on that and I wasn't sort of really that interested in, in being in a band anymore. So that, you know, just kind of like, just one of those things. You're in a band and then you're not. Yeah, and, and, and as you said before, if you've got a creative interest in your working life, then you're less inclined yeah. to sort of want to pursue the musical side of things. Has that resurfaced for you through the years? It has. Um, yeah, um, I've had a couple of music projects since since the 90s that um, the, there was one sort of 2010 and he was he's living because he lives in LA now and he was going to this bar which is owned by Nadine Coyle's parents from Nadine from Girls Aloud and uh, she was like going in there cause she just blew up with Girls Aloud so um, he was like schmoozing and uh, sort of like oh you know maybe I could write you some songs and um, so him and him and Richard kind of got together sort of transatlantic and uh, started writing these pop songs sort of with um, with the mind that, you know, Nadine Coyle was going to love them and want to sing them. And uh, yeah, Richard was singing them to start with. And um, obviously they wanted a female vocalist and they couldn't find anyone who would sing someone else's songs, um, obviously without being paid an extortionate amount of money. So Richard kind of talked me into doing it. It's like, oh, go on, just do one song. I'm like, oh, I can't. Was, you know, I was obviously really shy about singing, even in front of, you know, obviously we were married by then, it's my husband. Um, so, yeah, he kind of talked me into it, sort of a few glasses of wine later. And we did one song and he was really pleased with how it went. And like one song ended up being five songs and five songs ended up being 10 songs. And um, Nadine ended up not, using it she kind of went all country and western and yeah so we just ended up deciding well we'll do something with it so uh we called the we called the band the perfumo project and uh we sort of you know recorded a whole album and then uh we thought oh, it would be really good fun to make a couple of videos so uh, me and richard went to la and andy had organized this 
a, a like a professional um, film recorder to do, you know, to come and film it all. And uh, so we had like the script and everything drawn out, and uh, yeah, we were sort of uh, we were going around, um, kind of guerrilla. We were going around LA guerrilla style recording because if you go to if you go to Los Angeles or America in general, um, you can't just rock up as a tourist and start doing videos, start doing music videos. You actually have to have a license, um, which we didn't do any of that. We just went as tourists. Um, so we were like. Um, we were this one one we were doing we sort of started um this was the one we were doing without the without the prefix we did two videos we did one with this guy and then one which we just did we recorded it ourselves and the the storyline was um we were all we kind of met up at vegas in vegas and richard and andy were these businessmen and uh, they like won loads of money gambling and i kind of like come up as this chancer and i um i steal their money so I kind of like drug them, tie them up and, and steal their car and steal their money. So this is like the storyline. So we'd gone to um, we'd gone to these uh, joke shops and we'd bought um, we'd bought fake money and we'd got sort of chips and cards and stuff. We'd got we actually got two toy guns and we'd painted out the orange strips, which tell you that they're toys, which is like so <laughs> illegal. We'd got rope. Um, like we'd got all this stuff. Oh, we'd, we'd rent. We'd got it all in the boot of the car. We'd rented this um, red convertible Mustang, which we'd picked up from uh, Long Beach Airport. And uh, we were so I'm dressed up like for this video, looking like some Daisy Duke hooker in these like little hot pants and like a little insy insy top and sort of a face full of makeup. And uh, we'd stop. Here we come. I know. We stopped. <laughs> we literally just got out of LA, and there was this really long, straight bit of road, which is like your classic American like road trip image. And uh, so we stopped the car on the side of the road, and Richard set up the tripod. And um, like literally two minutes later, we see this cop car come around the roundabout, and they spotted <laughs> us. Of course they did. And uh, so they pull up behind us, and they're like, Hey, come over here. So like we had to like, ooh, we're like standing there like three naughty school children, like, oh no, we're in shit now. And they're like, what are you doing? You know, like, oh, just tourists, just doing some filming, you know, just filming the road. Nice shot and all that. And uh, they're like, where'd you get the car from? We're like, oh, we picked up from Long Beach Airport. It's a, it's a rental. Did you steal it? And we're like, no. And uh, so they're like, right, we want to see your IDs. And um, so Richard just dives into the car, which like you do not do in America, like, because this cop's got his hand on. He's like, what are you doing? Get out of the car. Step away from the car, sir. And uh, so Richard comes out and they're like expecting guns. And he's just like got my handbag with our passports in. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're like really giving us a good grilling. And um, Andy said, Andy like uttered the immortal words, oh, do you want to look in the trunk? Well, no, me and Richard are like, no, no, we'll get deported or arrested. And, um, so there's like one of the one of the cops is like eight feet tall, like Robocop. And then there's like this little Mexican cop as well. And so like Robocop looks at the passports and he's looking at us and he's going, oh, we're just going to check these out. So he gets off into the squad car and leaves us with the with the little cop and um and he's trying to make polite conversation with us he was actually really nice and he was going oh so um what what, is, what do you call cops in england um do you call them bobbies and all i could think of was pigs and um <laughs> don't say pigs don't say pigs <laughs> and i was going um uh, 
And then just then Robocop came out of the car and went, oh, you're a tourist. You picked this. This is a rental car. We're like, yeah, we told you that. And he went, oh, off you go. Then I gave us these passports back. And we're just like, oh, relief. We thought we were going to get arrested. Oh, that's, that's so brilliant. Is, yeah. uh, is that a video online for people to watch? maybe i don't know if we ever actually re if we ever did that if we ever finished that one if it is it'll be on youtube the top the song was telefunkin um the other one we did which was um dirty water um yeah we did this with this proper video guy and uh at the end of the video um i get blood poured over my head a la carrie you know the film right. carrie yep. and um so i had to like stand there in like this evening dress and somebody was up the top of a really tall ladder and um, pouring fake blood all over my head. And I had to stand there for like 20 seconds and <laughs> not blink. And in the act, because obviously we hadn't rehearsed it, because, you know, we're not going to waste all this fake blood or the dress. And uh, so I'm like standing there and um, someone's standing above me pouring this blood all over my head. And I'm like, oh, it was really horrible. It actually, I actually felt really freaked out by it. I and mean, it smelt disgusting. Um, and I just had to stand there and like, I was just trying not to scream. So like the look on my face at the end of this video is just like absolute horror. And um, anyway, so I'm like covered in blood after this video's ended and we're in the studio, we're in this, in this camera guy's studio and he says, oh, there's a shower in there. You can go and shower yourself off. So I go in there and um, it's like, hang on a minute, this isn't a shower. This is like um, some scene out of Hawaii. This is like a Hawaiian waterfall scene. It's like, why would there be a shower in a Hawaiian waterfall scene? He's a porn video person. <laughs> <laughs> like, where are the hidden cameras? <laughs> but I'm going, actually going back to a question that you asked me earlier about um, memorable gigs and like um, also, you know, when, you, when you're working in a job which is, you know, sort of non-committal. Um, when, when I was working at Kettle Chips, I used to, like the machinery was really, really loud. And I used to um, I used to be able to hear the songs in my head while I was sort of on the on the crisp line, sort of picking, chucking out mouldy crisps or you know the the bad ones off the off the conveyor belt. And the rattling noises would really be sort of you know you could hear you could hear all this music going on in there because it's so loud. So I used to actually really invent a lot of bass lines through that um, through that method, and uh, you know they're sort of chucking songs out at me. But then um, while I was working there. We did a gig at the Jacquard and um, any normal person would have just skived off work and, you know, just pulled a sickie. But I'm such a goody two shoes. Um, I actually asked if I could have the night because I was working night shift at the time. And um, so I asked him if I could have the night off and they said no. So they said, but you can have two hours off to do the gig. Um, so like, oh, OK. And they were like, don't come back drunk and don't come back late. You've got two hours. <laughs> it's like fatal. <laughs> So I came out of work and went to the Jacquard, did the gig, obviously had a couple of beers, a couple of pints, like, you know, just to steady my nerves. And then, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm here now. I might as well have a couple more. <laughs> so, of course, I went back to work drunk and late. <laughs> oh, brilliant. What eventually happened with the Profumo project then, Cathy? Oh, well, we did a gig. Um, we, uh, Stair were doing a gig at the waterfront, sort of like reforming. Uh, I think it was like 20 years on. Yeah, it was it 20? Yes, 20. It was a, their like 20th anniversary gig. And 
they were they were headlining the waterfront and they said well you know why don't why don't profumo project pull together some songs and actually support us so uh like well andy couldn't very well come back from la to do it um so bruno had actually played guitar on a lot of the tracks anyway you know stairs guitarist i mean he's like the most amazing guitarist anyway so it, we, we decided that bruno would play guitar and i would sing and everything else would be pre-recorded so we just picked the best five tracks and uh yeah we just we went along and did that and uh, i of course made my outfit and this was um what year was this 20 2012. so i was kind of very much into kind of Nicki minaj and also i was you know into the style of lady gaga and then i kind of also took some inspiration from ziggy stardust as well and like made this really amazing pink cat suit with like these big feather epaulets on the shoulder so yeah thanks adamant again yes <laughs> the, the gig went really well um we had we had like a few hundred people watching us because you know stare are pretty popular and you know they had a they had a good following so you know people kind of found out that you know we were doing this gig as well and you know they sort of turned out and watched us and it, it actually went down really well um but I, I think we would have made a good festival band if we'd have you know kind of kept going but the whole logistics, I mean, Bruno had really only done that guitar as a favour, although he did enjoy the gig at the time. Um, that wasn't sort of really his thing. And Andy was obviously in LA and, you know, it just it just didn't work out. It was, you know, logistically not not a good thing. What's next for you musically, Cathy? What, what's uh, on the horizon? Oh, so um, Richard is, he's been, he's written an album last year um, with Bruno. Um, with a band called Tin Strange uh, called Looking for a Nation, and he's now he's now writing up a follow up album for that. And um, he's just written five punk tracks for me to play bass on. So um, yeah, I've kind of like dusted off the old bass guitar and started started learning how to play again. Because yeah, I haven't played for about four or five years. So yeah, watch this space. Well, look, um, Kathy, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Um, it's been brilliant to hear your stories and and, uh, and and particularly loved those stories of the videos at the end. So if you have got any <laughs> yeah. links to those, that'd be great to share. Um, can we just finish off, please, with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now? So the song that you're now going to hear is A Glimpse of Scarlet and it's by Scarlet. Thanks, Kathy. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 